Psalm 88. The heading is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. For the choir director, according to Mahalat Leonot, a masculine of Haman, the Ezraite. It's quite a title for a psalm. We know that the leaders of the sons of Korah, that 288 member worship symphony choir, musicians, singers, all put together, a large group of people that were assigned and appointed by David of the tribe of Levi, Levi to be worship ministers, worship leaders. We know of this group referred to as the sons of Korah, that there were three primaries, that there were three main sons of Korah, three kind of leaders of the whole three, the whole thing, Asaph, Haman, and Aton. Asaph, Haman, Aton. Three. I think of Jesus saying in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And what's remarkable, wonderful to me is that wherever Jesus is present, Jesus is revealed. When two or three gather in his name, you are bound to learn of him and to understand more about him. As I am sure we will tonight. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul writes, Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Haman's name means faithful. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Revelation 1, 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Hey, Aton's name means enduring. Enduring. And then there's Asaph. Isaiah 56, verse 8 says, The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them. To those already gathered, Asaph's name means gatherer. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. So we have Haman, faithful, Aton, enduring, Asaph, gatherer, and where these three have gathered together in his name, guess what? We know more now about Jesus who is the faithful, enduring gatherer. That is who he is. And it's characteristic of what he does. Keep that in mind tonight as we enter this psalm, because with the bright exception of the very first line of the first verse, all seems lost to darkness. This is the only psalm of the 150 that ends in the dark with no hope. Strange for a song in the book of praises. Odd for a poem in the Bible itself. No hope. It ends in the dark. Chuck Smith once called it a drag. This psalm is a drag. If you don't know the rest of the story, it ends with despair. But here's the thing. Coming into this psalm, if you know the rest of the story, it does not end in the dark. 
Oh, the psalm itself does. Intentionally, I believe, ends in that place because the readers, the listeners, the worshipers singing along with this psalm would know the rest of the story. And in knowing the rest of the story, the darkness doesn't last. The darkness doesn't have hold. Now, this is the last of the sons of Korah's psalms. If it had been the first, you might have just said, I'm not going to read any more of those. Because it is depressing. It's written by Haman, the only psalm that we see crediting him personally. And Spurgeon calls him a man of deep experience who had done business on the great waters of soul trouble. But it's also a masculine. It's a maskil of Haman. I've told you, every time you see maskil, that's a teaching psalm. That means it's a didactic psalm. There's something to be learned here, something significant to go through it. For all its cries in the dark, we know there's something to be learned. A maskil. The psalm is also set to Mahalat Leonos, which in the Hebrew, Mahalat means to writhe in pain. And Leonot means as afflicted, humble, or weak. It's to be heart sick in humility and weakness and affliction. And so again, Psalm 88 is the darkest of all the Psalms. It is a Psalm set in the pit of deep sorrow. But check it out, it's a Savior Psalm. For all the darkness, for all the depression... For all the weeping and sorrow of Psalm 88, it is most definitely a Savior psalm. It begins in verse 1, O Lord, the God of my salvation. And that's the only positive recognition in the song. So at least it starts well. He is the God of my salvation to whom I am crying out. And you need to know this. It's not you. What I like about how this begins is it begins in the right place. O Lord, the God of my salvation, not I'm going to save myself. Not I'm going to figure this out. Not I will make a way to fix this problem. It's no, it's O Lord, the God of my salvation. And when he says that, he is not just speaking eternally. As I said on Sunday, salvation is bigger than we think. Now, salvation is eternal, which is as big as it gets. But salvation is salvation in every way. It's salvation from lost thinking. It's salvation from lost direction. It's salvation from the very depression you're going to read about in this psalm. You are the God of my salvation. You are my deliverer. That word also translates deliverer. In Isaiah 45, 21, the prophet said, Quoting the Lord, the Lord says through Isaiah, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none beside me. So you see how this is a savior psalm right out of the gate. O Lord God of my salvation, there is no other savior but me, God says. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You know when America needs to be saved from all the gun violence and all the hatred and all the vitriol? God, our Savior, He would save us from that. He would save this world from all of its wars and rumors of wars. God, our Savior. And yet He goes beyond and says, And I want to save you for myself. I want to save you for eternity. 
But narrowing it down, sometimes we play God, don't we, in our lives. Oh, we might not call it that, but that's what we're doing when we're trying to work it out. Trying to make ends meet. So we leave Him out of the process and we work it ourselves, forgetting the fact that He's the Savior. He's the Deliverer. Got a problem? Take it to, oh, God of my salvation. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, not only has He saved you for eternity, and He has, but He will save you today. He will save you in whatever situation you're struggling with right now. He is the Deliverer. So I love how this psalm begins. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And that word temptation also means trials. It also means hardships, difficulties. God knows how to save. He's got this. He knows what He's doing. Give Him the reins because you're not going to fix it. Lean into, trust the God of your salvation. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before You. Let my prayer come before You. Incline Your ear to my cry. Let my prayer come before You, Lord. Now, you need to understand something about the psalm writer here. And the heart that this is coming from, this is not a George Bailey moment. What do you mean? It's a Wonderful Life. I've quoted the movie before. One of my favorites. Every Christmas I look forward to watching It's a Wonderful Life. And it's that scene in the movie. If you've seen it, you know. If you haven't seen it, I'll bring you up to speed. George Bailey is at Martini's Bar because he's in big trouble. Not because of something he's done. But he's about to lose everything. And he's sitting at the bar and he's weeping and he's terrified. And he says, and I quote, Oh God. Dear Father in Heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope. Show me the way. Now that's not an unusual prayer in this world. There are many times where people will approach God that way. I'm not a praying man, but God, if you're up there. I'm not a praying woman, but Lord, if you're there and you can hear me. Oh God, if there is a God. Those cries go up all the time. That is not this psalm. This is not coming from someone who is not a praying man. This is coming from a praying man. Much prayer has already happened before the pen is set to the page. Three different times in the psalm he cries this out, that I have prayed, I have poured out my heart to you, I have lifted my hands to you, morning, day, night, I'm, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm crying out. And he's hearing nothing. This is a praying man. Verse 3, For my soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol, which in Hebrew is the place of the dead. I've had enough trouble. Little side note, when you've had too much trouble, when it's all piling in and it's all piling up and it's too much to bear, the advice of Jesus in Matthew 6.34 is, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That is one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said. Because you know what we do with that? We say, okay, what can I do today? 
can I, can I deal with this right now? Is there anything I can do about this particular problem right now, today? No, actually that's a problem I'm not even going to face for two more weeks. Then don't worry about it. You let today's trouble be enough for today. You don't worry about, what about last week? Last year something happened and I still can't get over it. Can you get through today? See, Jesus knows our hearts well enough to know that each one of us can deal with one day. It's about all I can deal with. One day, a day at a time. And that's Jesus' advice when you're in trouble. Just say, Lord Jesus, show me the way today. Get me from my pillow back to my pillow. And some days you might say, and as quickly as possible. <laughs> but let today's trouble be enough. The psalmist is, he's, he's spinning. He's spiraling down. And he's bringing in all of the cries and all the prayers and all of the trouble. It's all piling in and spinning downward into this pit. Show me my part today, Lord. Just help me to deal with right now. And then he says, I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. Verse 4, I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. And they are cut off from your hand. This is how I'm feeling, he says. You'll notice in the psalm, he's not blaming God. He's crying out to God. He's expressing to the Lord how it feels. That's not faithlessness. In fact, there's great faith in the psalm because the whole thing is directed to God. His pain is directed to God. His sorrow is directed to God. His his darkness is laid before the Lord. But this is how I'm feeling right now. And let me just encourage you, pray that way. God's not afraid of your emotion. I mean, as you pray and when you're hurting... To say, God, it just feels like this. I just and, I, and it feels like you're not even there. I'm crying out and I'm not hearing anything. To share one's feelings with the Lord is not a bad thing. Now, I would add to that, do so in fear. I mean, that, that holy fear that recognizes who God is. And doesn't seem to seek to blame him and throw everything at him and say, if you only did this, if you only did that. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, God, I just feel so alone right now. Father, I can't hear you. I can't see you. I don't know what you're doing. I'm frightened. I'm hurting. It's, it's how I'm feeling. Who of you parents would ever turn your child away from sitting in your lap or coming up to you as a teenager? Teenagers don't sit in your parents' laps. But coming up to mom and dad and saying, this is what's going on and I don't know what to do with this situation. A parent would say, talk to me. You know, pour it out. I'm listening. So this is Haman. The first person in this psalm, remember again, recognizes he is talking to the God of his salvation. By the way, the first person in this psalm isn't Haman. Well, but Rick, you said it's a masculine of Haman. Yeah, it's a teaching psalm of Haman. It's, it's Haman giving some didactic learning through this psalm, but he is not the first person. And I'll explain that as we go. Verse 6, you have put me in the lowest pit. In the dark places, in the depths, your wrath has rested upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. And then we have a Selah. So we pause to wonder here, as the darkness closes in, 
that it's not only the circumstances of life being felt, it's the very wrath of God, it's waves of affliction that are rolling over this first person speaker. Verse 8, you have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I'm shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. So again, he's praying and praying and waiting on the Lord. And he says, and note this, my eye has wasted away because of affliction. That's a Hebrew way of saying, I can't see clearly. I can't even think straight. I'm in such a bad place, such a dark place. Jesus said in Matthew 6.23, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And isn't that the way of depression and despair? Of really being in the pit. You feel utterly alone. You feel dejected. You feel closed in. Unable to see beyond the walls of your sorrow. And you feel like your acquaintances are far from you. They don't care anymore. He's describing some very human emotion that you can relate to, I can relate to. And then the Apostle Paul has the audacity to come along in 2 Corinthians 4.17 and say, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Well, thanks for that, Paul. But you're not in the pit that I'm in. And as we said, I believe in a recent study, no, Paul was probably in far worse pits than you've ever been in. But he has perspective. He understands the God of his salvation. But while it's absolutely true, and it is true, that what is happening in our lives, for better or worse, and especially the dark places, it is producing for us as we follow Jesus an eternal weight of glory. And as we've said a few times here, we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, it was worth it. No matter how dark it seems, it was worth it for heaven. For the glory that is going to come. However, when you're on location in depression, and in darkness and in despair... Affliction doesn't feel light or momentary. So let God's word assure you that it really is. Listen to the objective word of God, the absolute truth. And and I mean, tonight or, or when you're in a place of darkness, let the word of God wash over you in truth. It may not feel like your affliction will ever produce anything worthwhile, but the word says, Psalm 30 verse 5, his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. There will yet be joy. Or Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I may not feel that way, but His objective true word says it's that way. So I'm going to accept it. Or Romans 8.37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. I don't know about you, but in my weakest moments, I do not feel like a conqueror. But that's subjective. The objective truth is you are a conqueror in Jesus Christ regardless of how it feels. Regardless of what's taking place in the moment. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.5 You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, you can still cry out, O Lord, the God of my salvation. So what I'm saying in all this is even when your eyes can't see, as we just say, remember, God is by nature a Savior. God is characteristically a deliverer whose entire desire with you is to save you. In verse 10, he says, Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? He follows this by another Selah, but the Hebrew language here implies the strongest negative possible. If you were hearing it sung in the Hebrew, you would hear, Will you perform wonders for the dead? No. Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Absolutely not. Clearly, if you're dead, you can't worship. Clearly, if you're dead, you're not rising. That's, that's the implication. That's the way it, it feels. That's the way it comes off. In a way, it's the final word on darkness and the grave. He's saying there is no light in dark places. No ability to praise. Let me tell you something to a culture that at one time knew light and knew it well, but has turned to dark counsel anyway. Isaiah wrote the following. When they say to you, consult the mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should a people not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. So we're back to this word. This objective, true, absolute word. That speaks truth so that when I'm in that subjective, mournful place, I can at least go to the true word of God and say, Alright, I feel like all is lost, but He says it's not. I feel like I am not saved. He says I am. I feel like there will be no end to my pain. He says joy comes in the morning. And we keep coming back to and appealing to His Word. And if you're really depressed, don't read Psalm 88. (laughs) By all means, avoid it. Unless you know the rest of the story. Verse 11, he continues, Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness... In Abaddon? Abaddon? Do you remember that? Keep your finger here and turn over to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation is easy to find. And by the way, as you're turning there, there are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation. One revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But Revelation chapter 9 gives us insight into this Abaddon who he mentions in Psalm 88. Or at least this place. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon? Revelation chapter 9 verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. The bottomless pit is the abusos. Or literally it's abuso frietos. Not fritos. It's a different pit. The abusos frietos which literally means the abyss shaft. The bottomless pit, the abyss shaft. This is one that just goes down and down. It is a hellish detention center 
for the worst of the worst of all demons. Verse 2, he opened the bottomless pit. The smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth and power was given them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And you know how those scorpions are described or these locust beings with human faces and hair like women and, and they look like horses. I mean, they're really twisted, demonic Beings that come out of this horrific pit. But down in verse 11, it says, They have as king over them the angel of the abyss, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. In other words, destruction has a master. Abaddon. And he is Abaddon. Apollyon is his name because he is appalling. This demonic being is one of great power. John 10, verse 10, says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. That's it. Every time we read John 10, 10, and it's, it's a lot, that verse seems to pop up quite a bit. But every time we read it, we are reminded there's only a three-part plan to Satan's strategy in the world and in your life, and that is to steal and kill and destroy. That's all he does. He does not care about you. He doesn't want anything good for you. He's not there to help you along. He just wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Which means if you're getting blessed because of the work of Satan, it's only so he can later steal it. If your life seems to take a better direction just by you know, throwing off, as Psalm 2 says, let's throw off the fetters of God and of Christ. You think that'll make life better? You're just going to end up destroyed. Because that's what Abaddon does. That's what Apollyon does. Wait, wait, so are you saying that Satan is Abaddon? The king of the locust swarm may or may not be Satan. I, I lean toward this is a demon king in the abyss because he's in the abyss with them. Abaddon, Apollyon is the king over these locusts and comes up out of the abyss and Satan's not in the abyss. Where's Satan right now? Roaming the earth, right? Prowling around like a lion, lion waiting to devour. That's what Peter tells us. So he's present in the world today, which is why we see the evil. It's why we see the shootings. It's why the answer to all of this, more than any other single thing, is people need to go to church. Put simply, people need Jesus. We need to return to the values and the morals and the truths of Scripture, the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the sensitivity and the tenderness and the kindness and gentleness that this Word teaches. It is what is so severely lacking in our world, valuing the very life that God has created. That's at the root of all the problems. People have turned their back on that. Well, these demonic creatures in Revelation 9, they have a leader. Again, either the devil himself or, I I believe, Abaddon, who is in league with the devil. But remember, and back in Psalm 88, when he says, will your faithfulness be declared in Abaddon or in this context, in destruction itself. Remember that whatever Satan intends for evil, God intends for good. The worst of the worst happening to you, God can turn it on a dime. Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But, but will His grace be declared 
In the grave? Verse 12. Will your wonders be made known in the darkness? And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He's asking these questions and in this dark pit that he finds himself, this first person speaker of Psalm 88 is saying, I'm asking these questions, but I'm sensing a no is the answer to everyone because I am so lost, I'm so in the dark here. He says in verse 13, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. And again, this is now the fourth time. Verses 1, verse 2, verse 9, and verse 13, where he refers to the fact that he has prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Let me just read them to you again so we understand the full context. Verse 1, I cried out to you by day and in the night before you. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to hear my cry. Verse 9, I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. And verse 13, I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. And obviously, his prayers are unanswered. So what do you do when your prayers are unanswered? When you have cried out to the Lord... And honestly, in most cases, I've cried out to the Lord for at least 48 hours and haven't gotten a response. (laughs) What do you do when you've cried out to the Lord for weeks, months, years, and you're not getting a response or don't believe you're getting an answer? What do you do? You turn to Luke 18. Go ahead and do that. Luke chapter 18. Jesus appears to refer to this problem, if not to this very psalm. He may even be quoting, it's not a direct quote, but it is so close that that I think he may have Psalm 88 in mind as he begins teaching Luke chapter 18, picking up in verse 1. If you're not there, get there. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. And there's no other qualification for that. So note, when Luke writes that, at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart, he doesn't add, you know, unless it's been for three years, at that point then you can stop praying. Unless you've been doing this for 27 years, at which point you need to just give it up. He doesn't say that. Not lose heart. At all times, keep praying. Keep praying. Do not lose heart. And here's the parable, and it's one of my favorites. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Nice guy. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. What a great parable. And the Lord said here what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry out to Him day and night. Note that, day and night, Psalm 88, verses 1, 2, 9, and 13. His elect who cry out to Him day and night. The psalmist says, I've cried out day and night. And Jesus says, and will He delay long 
over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? It's a great parable because Jesus doesn't just say, there was once a judge and a widow came from him to Him and she was persistent so He gave her her will. He says there was an unrighteous judge who hated man and hated God. This is a bad guy. Jesus paints as dark a picture of this judge as possible to draw the the massive contrast with a God who is not unjust but is just. Who is not man-hating but loves people. Who truly cares and has a heart toward His elect. A God that is so radically different than the judge in this story. And yet even the judge in this story, if you're persistent, He's going to give in because He's getting worn out by it. Jesus says that's the deal. If your persistence is enough to wear out a wicked judge, think about how your persistence comes off to a loving, righteous, just, heavenly Father. How does He hear it? What does He do with it? And Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, however, will He find faith on the earth? Faith on the earth. Faith in what? Faith in God. Trust in God. Because the issue of our prayer is not, have we prayed enough? And the issue with our prayer is not, are we faithful enough? And it's not, are we saying enough of the right words? Or are we living a life that is pleasing enough? That, none of that is the issue in our prayer. The issue in our prayer is, who are we praying to? The issue in our prayer is the character of God. See, that's what prayer is really all about. It's not about you. And it's not about me. And it's not about the request. And it's not about our behavior, good or bad. It's about who He is. And when I turn around and understand that, it it radically changes a prayer life when I recognize there's nothing I can do that's good enough to make my prayers acceptable. Jesus did everything to make my prayers acceptable. Jesus now intercedes for me. And it is the very character of Christ listening that is in response to my prayer. The hope of my prayer is not in how I pray. It's in how God is. And characteristically, and right back to the objective Word of God, guess what? He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is good. He is long-suffering and patient. He is loving kindness. This is the God to whom we pray. And my prayers hinge, rest, hang upon His nature and His character. So what do you do when your prayers seem to go unanswered? You keep praying. Because of who He is. You keep crying out because of who you know God to be. You're appealing to the God whose very character is the wellspring of justice and mercy. You just keep praying. Well, I'm tired of praying. I understand. But you notice also in the parable that Jesus makes the comment, will not God bring about justice for His elect to cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will bring about justice for them quickly. Yeah, but I've been praying for years. That doesn't seem so quick. In the span of eternity, it's like that. He will bring about justice quickly. And I would remind you, I would point you to some of the people in, in Scripture and some of the waiting that we see there. 
David, who's anointed to be king and waits 10 years before he rises to the throne. Moses, who has trained up a prince of Egypt and spends 40 years, 40 years a shepherd in Midian before he's called to be the deliverer. Or the lame man at the beautiful gate, who was lame from birth, was there all his life. Over 30 years, they set him down at the beautiful gate, which means Jesus walked by him every single time Jesus went into Jerusalem and did not heal him. It took Peter and John later to be the ones who healed him. What about the blind man in John chapter 9? Who who was blind from birth until Jesus chose to give him sight. You keep praying. You keep crying out. And if it seems as though He is not hearing you, what does the Bible say about the ears of God? What does the Bible tell you about the hearing of God? He hears His people. He's listening. He's got it. Keep bringing it. Keep crying out. Verse 14 of Psalm 88, O Lord, why do You reject my soul? Why do You hide Your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I'm overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. All, they have encompassed me altogether. You have removed, removed lover or beloved and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. And that's the end of the psalm. Have a nice night. Thanks for coming. <laughs> It just ends hopelessly. No resolution. No answer. No, like even some of the other psalms that are a little heavy, they at least end with, but I will praise the Lord. But I will put my hope in the Lord. But I will hang everything on you. and who, Nothing. Just ends. Bummer. Silence seems to be the final word of the psalm, but it is not the end of the story, which is what makes this psalm so wonderful. Did you know, I guess you did know, because I think I told you this earlier, that this psalm in the book of praises is also a sanctuary psalm? Did I mention that? I didn't mention that. It is among what's called the sanctuary psalms. Psalm 88, the psalm of utter darkness and despair, is a sanctuary psalm. In the book of praises, in the Bible... It's not written to leave one disturbed. It's not here for us to walk out depressed. Why it's here, it's it's a masculine, it's a teaching psalm. It's here to tell the dark side of a man rejected by his brothers who went down into a pit, left there to die, sold into slavery in Egypt. It's a story of Joseph. Keep your finger here and go back to Genesis 37. Now Genesis, that's a little harder to find than Revelation, but I'm going to trust that you can get there. Genesis 37. In verse 13, we'll pick it up. No, no, verse 18, sorry. Genesis 37, verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. These are Joseph's brothers. Nice lot. These are the sons of Israel. These are those whose names would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're plotting to kill Joseph, who they hate. 
They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, verse 19. Now then, verse 20, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Again, nice guys. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, uh, throw him into this pit that's in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. See, Reuben's plan was throw him in the pit, come back later on when the guys aren't around and pull Joseph out and get him home. So that's oldest brother. At least he's got kind of a head on his shoulders. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the varicolored tunic that was on him. They took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty, without any water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Again, nice guys. They're sitting there eating while their brother's crying in the pit off in the distance. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus, they brought Joseph into Egypt. I can't wait to talk about this when we get back into Genesis. What a great story. But we'll just read it for now. Verse 29, Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy's not there! As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. And then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Take that literally. How did Jacob feel? I mean, this is, this is a horrible, horrible thing that his brothers did. Tearing out the heart of their father. And Jacob tore his clothes, verse 34, and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol and mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And Psalm 88 appears to be the first person historical account of Joseph. This is the point. And if you know the rest of the story, you know how it ends. So it's not suddenly a psalm of despair, but a psalm of of hope. It's a psalm that, that tells the story. It bears the story out. Joseph, a praying man, as we know of the first person in Psalm 88, a man hassled by his brothers, as we know of the person in Psalm 88, the object of their loathing and tossed into a pit, which is exactly what happened to Joseph. But again, that's not the end of the story because the Lord, the Lord was with him from the pit to Potiphar. He gets pulled up out of the pit and there in Potiphar's house, you know the story, Joseph prospered. 
Because God was with him. He gained charge over everything in the entire house, everything that is, except for Potiphar's wife, but apparently she didn't get the memo. Day after day, Potiphar's wife comes on to Joseph. Day after day, he turns her away. Finally, she makes a grab for him, and he makes a run for it. But she gets hold of his cloak and uses this as false evidence to testify that he tried to rape her. Of course, you know what happens when Potiphar hears about that. Joseph goes from the pit to Potiphar to the prison. Now he's in prison. And if you happen to be a victimized person or a martyr, you might say, well, this is what I expected. This is just the way my life goes. Right back down into the pit. But wait, wait. What happens to the man who trusts in God? See, here's the answer in the darkness. The person who trusts in God when they're in the darkness, understands this very simple principle, the Lord is there too. The Lord is with them in the darkness. He's not somewhere else looking down, noting there's a pit over there and I see you're kind of stuck. He is in the pit. This is the God who's in the furnace. This is the God who's in the lion's den. He is with you in the darkness. And so Joseph just continued to be lifted up. If you look at at Genesis chapter 39, verse 19, verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph there in the prison and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible. So he's thrust down into another pit, the prison, but he's raised up. Now he's in charge of everyone in the entire jail. Verse 23, the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. That's the story of Joseph's life. It happens over and over. And he gets pulled out of the pit, goes to Potiphar, goes to the prison, and then he goes out to Pharaoh after two years of incarceration. Joseph is remembered. He gets called up to interpret a dream of Pharaoh. He interprets it correctly because the Lord is with him. And he ends up second in charge over all Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh. You know what that does? It sets the stage. Going back to Psalm 88, it sets the stage for the salvation of Joseph's entire family. How does the psalm begin? O Lord, the God of my salvation. For the man in the pit, he understands as dark and dismal and despairing as the pit may seem, the Lord is there with me. And He is doing something with me in the pit. It's an amazing story of the life of Joseph. And that's the point of Psalm 88. God is the God of my salvation. He is the God of salvation I don't even see. Okay, I'm going to tell you about this. Little little rabbit trail, little side note. Hope you have a few minutes tonight. I, I shared this with our staff this morning and then Les said, you've got to tell everybody. So I'll, I'll tell you this. We're in this place. I, I keep bringing up the adoption. Well, this is just kind of our life right now. But we're in a really interesting place with, with adopting Christopher and, and Cheryl's going to be hopefully leaving on August 26th to go to Ghana for three weeks or so and foster Christopher there. It's part of the deal. It's part of what we need to do. And one of the things that we finally 
come have come to understand working with our contact in Ghana is the way things are right now, it would really be best if Judy and Christopher were in Accra, which is the capital city, rather than in Sunyani, which is up to the north where they currently reside. That if we can get them down to Accra and they can stay there while the adoption process finalizes, it'll move a whole lot faster. So Cheryl's on the phone. She's trying to figure this out. Well, two years ago, was it two years ago that you met Juliet? Four years ago. Wait, I have no concept of time. Four years ago, Cheryl's in Walmart. And there's a, a, a woman there helping her, you know, check out. And she said two or three words. Now, this is Cheryl. I don't do this kind of thing. Cheryl just has an ear for this. And she, Cheryl looked at her and said, you're from Ghana, aren't you? And she said, yes, how do you know? Yeah, and then they struck up a conversation. Cheryl ended up getting her phone number and, and struck up a friendship with Juliet. Lives in, in Oak Harbor. She's a believer. Works at Walmart, works also at the post office, I think, and it doesn't matter. So it has this friendship that's been going on now for over the last four years. After they met, a while into that, they came over to our house and, and made Ghanaian food with Anna Marie and Naomi. Thrilled Anna Marie to no end, because that's her favorite kind of food. And, and so we've had this ongoing thing, and Cheryl has stayed in touch with and sees Juliet every now and then. Turns out Juliet's brother and mother live in Accra and are opening their home for Judy and Christopher to live there while this process goes on. This is what God does. This has been four years in the making from from our perspective, probably further, but it's one of so many things. And, And I only share that to say God knows the big picture. We only know little bits. Cheryl's in a checkout. It's embarrassing to me. I got to tell you, we're in the checkout line. She's always talking to people. I'm like, head down, buy my food, go to the car. But God has a plan. And even when you don't see it working, it's working. He's putting the pieces together. If you've been crying out to the Lord for a long, long period of time, please understand, A, He hears you, and B, He's working on something. Why haven't you answered me, Lord? Well, I've got to get you to meet Juliet before we can... And then she's going to... And we'll make sure that we have a house because it's going to be best if they're in a cross. You see what I'm saying? Let God work. We need to learn a little patience with the Lord because He's doing the best for you that could possibly be done. And he was doing that throughout Joseph's life, at the end of Joseph's life, when he meets up with his brothers again. Do you remember? He talks to them and he says, this was for God's purpose. You guys thought you were selling me into slavery. (laughs) Ha ha, no, it was God. He was behind it the whole time to save our family. Joseph understood that. And that's the psalm. And that's the point, this historical lesson to be learned in this Savior psalm. But wait, it's not just historical. It's prophetic. Because Joseph's not the only one who went into the pit. Ancient rabbis have tried to explain Messiah and especially the disparate views of Messiah by giving him two personas. Because if you read the Hebrew Scriptures without the understanding of the New Testament, without 20-20 hindsight like we have, if you're just reading through going forward, you, you really get two definite expressions of Messiah. And so the old rabbis would say, well, then there's maybe there's two messiahs. There's the king redeemer, who they call Messiah ben David. And there's the suffering savior, who they call Messiah ben Joseph. 
David the king, Joseph the suffering servant. And, and they use those two names to describe and talk about two aspects of who we know as the one and the same Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is both the suffering servant in first coming and glorious king in second coming. The rabbis will say one line portrays him as a humble suffering savior, Jesus first coming. The other line of prophecy depicts him as a conquering king redeemer, Jesus in his second coming. But they didn't see it as first and second coming. They saw it as perhaps two different people because they failed to recognize that Jesus is the Christ. And Psalm 88 is his psalm. Watch this quickly. Verse 1, O Lord, the God of my salvation. And if you don't know this, jot it down. The word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. O Lord, the God of my Jesus. So his name begins the psalm. Every time you see salvation or deliverance in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's Yeshua. Jesus is all over the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's why Matthew one twenty one, the, the angel speaks to Joseph in a dream and says, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. Salvation. He is salvation. His name means salvation. But if you read on down Psalm 88, verse 4, he says, I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. Verse 6, you have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Now you might say, well, did that happen? Emotionally, no doubt. Emotionally, Jesus in the garden. Emotionally, Jesus on the cross was in that place of of extreme and utter darkness. But was he ever in a pit? Literally. And there is a church in Jerusalem that's called St. Peter's Galicantu. Galicantu is the Latin for rooster crow. The church is literally called St. Peter's Rooster Crow. What a great name for a church. We thought about that, but bridge seemed to be more appropriate for us here. It's an ancient Byzantine church. In fact, the original church built on this location, on this site, was built in 457 A.D. What's interesting is when a church is built on a certain site, there's usually a reason. They, they thought something took place, something happened there. That church uh, ended up being destroyed in, in uh, 1010. A.D. It was rebuilt by the Crusaders in 1102. It was in ruins again by 1320. And then in 1931, the current church that's there, St. Peter's Gallican II, was constructed. But after construction, they began to dig around. And they began to discover, even beneath this Byzantine church, the ruins of what was once a very wealthy mansion. In, on Mount Zion in a place called the Upper City, a home that was known to belong to a wealthy, high-profile personality of the first century. And listen, this is one of these places in Israel, in Jerusalem, that is like 99.9% sure. Because archaeologists have made discovery there to say, with almost 100% certainty, this was the house of Caiaphas that this church was built above. And in the house of Caiaphas, the basement has all these different uh, storage areas and in one particular location, a cistern. Right next to the brethren. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. There's, a, there's a, a cistern there, but it's a converted cistern converted as a holding cell for prisoners. 
And it is believed that that's what Caiaphas did when he and the Sanhedrin didn't know what to do with someone or had to take dark counsel over some, some criminal of Jewish law. They would drop them down into the pit and they would leave them there. And it's believed that that's exactly where Jesus was when he was taken to the house of Caiaphas. Matthew chapter 26 verse 57 says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So Peter's outside and there's a courtyard outside and he's warming himself by the fire with the enemy, by the way, in the courtyard of the house of Caiaphas. John, who was known to the high priest, was there as well in that same courtyard area. Inside the house, we're told, Matthew twenty six fifty nine, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. While they're having their dark council and their meetings, Jesus would have been in the pit. Psalm 88 what we call sometimes the psalm of the pit, historically speaks of Joseph. But it's not an historical psalm. It is prophetic. It does speak of Jesus Christ in the pit. Ironically, it was Caiaphas the high priest who hated Jesus, who stood opposed to Jesus, who prophesied that salvation would come by Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 50 Caiaphas said, It is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And John writes, Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus was going to die for the nation. (laughs) Which is marvelous. Here's Caiaphas speaking darkness. Better that he die and the nation be saved, not realizing that, yeah, because he's dying, the nation will be saved. It's exactly as you say, bro. He's a prophet and didn't even know it. We go down into this pit every time we visit Jerusalem. Used to be, when you went down to the pit, you'd turn off the lights and it was dark. They don't let us do that anymore. Utter darkness in the pit. A place of absolute despair. Can you imagine Jesus in that place? See, the Gospels are kind with the story. The gospel writers are gentle with us and with our emotions. And don't speak of the absolute brutality and the horror of what happened through six unjust trials on that night. They don't detail it like they could detail it. And when we go down there, I often think, what was it like at this moment? He's already been beaten, as the Bible tells us, unrecognizable. Isaiah had to prophesy that one. Beard plucked out face beaten, crown of thorns. Actually, that would come a little bit later. But he's in bad shape and he's down there in this in this pit, completely alone, no one giving voice for him. And in that place, what does verse 7 say? Your wrath has rested upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Listen, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ didn't just happen at the cross. It happened all that night. It was wave after wave after wave of punishing wrath as Jesus took the sin of humanity on His shoulders ultimately to have it nailed up to the cross. But every brutal moment was an experience for Jesus of the wrath of God. 
And the psalm prophesies as much right there in verse 7 that Jesus satisfied the full weight of the wrath of God to pull you out of the pit, to pull me out of darkness, to bring me into light and to salvation. Verse 13 of the psalm, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help. Note this, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Jesus was constant in prayer. But these were morning hours when Jesus would have been in that pit. What would Jesus have been doing in the pit? Just weeping, just crying? Praying. Praying in the pit. In the early morning hours of crucifixion day. Verse 14, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Doesn't that sound familiar? About the ninth hour, Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus having that human experience of, of forsakenness. Was He forsaken? No. Did he feel forsaken? Absolutely. In the pit. Verse 18. You have removed lover and friend far from me. And again, lover in the Hebrew is beloved. You have removed my beloved and my friends. My acquaintances are in darkness. Jesus had told the apostles that's what's going to happen. Matthew 26, 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I'll go ahead of you to the Galilee. See, that's the rest of the story. You're going to fall away. You're going to, you're going to betray me. That's darkness. That's horrible. That's terrifying. But I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. That's the good stuff. And that comes after the darkness. Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times before the Galicon too, Peter. You will deny me. And he did. Just as they led Jesus, pulled him out of the pit, led him out of the house into the courtyard of Caiaphas, just in time for Peter's third denial and the Galicon too. The rooster crow and Luke twenty two sixty one. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Even my acquaintances are in darkness. And if the story ended there, it would be the most tragic story in the history of mankind. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And I want you to notice just a couple more things here. Look at verse 10. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? The deeply negative Hebrew sentiment is countered with a resounding yes. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, yes, He will perform wonders for the dead. Yes, the departed spirits will rise and praise you. Yes, the answer is. 1 Corinthians 15.55, Oh death, where's your victory? Oh death, where's your sting? Sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren... 
Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing, listen, that your toil is not in vain. What toil? Maybe that 20-year prayer that you have ceaselessly prayed and you've wondered why there's been no response. Your toil is not in vain. Jesus rose from the dead. All prayer will be answered. Everything is going to be made right. Jesus said, Revelation 1.18, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And so... Even as Joseph was pulled out of pit and prison, rising to second in command over all of Egypt, Jesus walked out of the tomb, rising to the place of highest authority over all the heavens and the earth, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And verse 11 says, Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Yes and yes. Yes and yes. Deliverance from destruction and grace over the grave. Absolutely yes. This dark psalm becomes a psalm of great hope because we know the rest of the story. And because we know the rest of the story, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. So the psalm ends in darkness, but it's just the beginning of hope. By the way, on the lower south wall of the Caiaphas cell, that cistern under his house. There's something very interesting there, an unexplainable image of a praying man. It's not carved, it's not scratched, it's not painted. It's not even scorched into the wall as if by flame. It's just there, this image of a praying man. The minerals on the wall seem to just have absorbed this image and scientists have studied it and can't figure out how it got there or why it's there, but it's very obviously there. A praying man. And I wonder, I I truly do wonder if in that place of utter darkness that it may be that Jesus, the light of the world, made an impression as he prayed. Has he made an impression on you? Forget about the wall and the cistern. Has Jesus Christ made an impression on your life, on your heart? Has the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ made an impression on you? Jesus said in John 3.19, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And that is the rest of the story. Father, we praise you. We close Psalm 88 with a shout of joy in the morning. 
Because Psalm 88 does not conclude. Because it leaves open the historical story, Lord, of Joseph, but the glorious prophetical story of Jesus Christ. Father, I I thank You for this and I thank You for Your Word to us. But I want to pause and pray. And and it's interesting, You've taken us to this place a lot in the Savior Psalms. Lord, I guess because Psalms of deliverance are for those who need to be delivered. And that's all of us from one time to another. So I just want to pray, Lord, for Your deliverance from the darkness. Father, whether it's someone here tonight, someone who will listen at a later time, Lord, I pray for those who feel like they are in the darkness, like the walls are closing in, like they are in the pit, like Joseph was, or like Jesus, you were yourself. Father, I pray for the objective truth of your word to overcome and overwhelm the subjective pain that we can sometimes feel. I pray, Lord, that You will increase our faith to know that regardless of all circumstance, that as we sang earlier, through it all, through it all, Lord, it's not even that our eyes are on You. Through it all, Your eyes are on us. Your eyes are on Your servant. Your ears are tuned to hear every cry and every prayer. And that You are not distant, Lord Jesus, but You are with us in the dark. I pray for encouragement, Lord. I pray for the deep comfort that comes of Your Spirit. And I ask, Lord, that we would be aware of Your presence, even in those darkest of places. That we would know as You rose from the dead and the pit of darkness, so You will call us out. So we will rise. So that day of great joy is coming. Comfort your people, Father, and help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.